This podcast is brought to you by producer Jim Mintz. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day, Diplomates fans. I'm Misha. Uh, man, oh man, it has been a big year. Now, before I talk about this episode, I do once again want to remind everyone, firstly, uh, if you've been to any of my book launch events, thank you so much for coming along. If you've bought The Sun Will Rise, thank you so much for your support. Now, if you haven't bought it yet, there's still time before Christmas. It is a very, very good gift for someone you like or someone you hate. I've actually sent Putin 50 of them. So uh, please uh, do order it. Uh, and if you like it, uh, please rate and review it. So if you already own it and you've read it or you're reading it, it really does help. Uh, if you jump on Amazon, Goodreads, wherever you like, give it a rating, give it a review, share it on social media. Um, it makes a big, big difference. Now, to what to wrap up the year, I've, I've got my usual uh, partner in crime, Hagar Shamali, who's come on to talk about all the wild and wonderful things happening around the world. It's a, a really yeah, detailed conversation. We, we cover a lot of terrain. So um, strap in. Enjoy yourself and please try to uh, relax and unplug a little bit from the world uh, because it does feel like the world is getting to get crazy and 2024 promises to be even crazier. Hagar, welcome back to the show. Merry Christmas and all that jazz. Good to see you. Good to see you. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Right, all those wonderful things. Um, now, even though the year is winding down, geopolitics would appear to be ramping up. Um, and uh, we always say there's so much going on in the world whenever we catch up. And I feel that that doubles down every single time I said that. So it couldn't be possibly more things happening in the world. And yet there are more things happening in the world. So uh, now we're going to start with my favorite topic. I know it's a topic that you love talking about, but because I don't get enough of it from my um, Twitter followers and uh, all my experts on my Instagram feed. Israel-Palestine conflict, where is this up to? Uh, you know, it, it's moved along since we spoke last, but maybe you could just give us a, a quick update. We might just talk about the geopolitics of where things are at right now. Sure. Okay, I'll try and summarize it, uh, summarize the latest quickly. Um, and you are right, world news is never boring. It continues to unfold in a crazy way. So since we last spoke, you had a truce. I don't think we spoke uh, since then. So you had a truce where there was a hostage prisoner exchange and humanitarian aid as well and a cessation of hostilities. That truce broke down after seven days, but a, a large number of hostages were released. Uh, it was about... It was about 90 hostages or, well, it was just over 100, but but it's over 100 if you're including both Israeli hostages and foreign nationals, mostly Thai uh, citizens and one Filipino who were also taken, but they were released in a separate deal. So they were exchanged for a number of Palestinian prisoners, uh, somewhere around 240, something like that. And, uh, and so you had that happen. It broke down when Hamas said uh, that they had no more female prisoners for no more female hostages to exchange, which... Israel said is not true. These are the ones we have. The U.S. confirmed that Hamas is the one that broke down the entire agreement, and then they resumed to hostilities. So Israel moved then from there into the south of Gaza, and operations have been extremely intense. People say even more intense than when they were in the north part of Gaza. And the reason for that is that they're trying to target this one city in particular called Khan Yunis, which is a stronghold of Hamas. So you have the civilian death toll that continues to grow. And listen, I'm not one to parrot uh, anything from Hamas, but their numbers are not that shocking in terms of civilian death toll. You're 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 encroaching, getting up to about twenty thousand civilian deaths, and the Israelis actually on their side, when it hit about seventeen thousand or over seventeen thousand, said that that there, that that was their understanding too. So the point is, this is. A, a very large number of civilian deaths in a very short time period uh, to highlight for you that situation. And the humanitarian situation is awful. You've got starvation, very little, if any, clean water, uh, diseases on the uh, rising and rising. You have 1.8 or over 1.8 million Gazan civilians displaced. That's out of two, two, two million people. So that is the vast majority of, of the population. They've been displaced and, um, and really have 
nowhere to go after this on top of it once this once hostilities die down because a lot has been reduced to rubble. So so this is kind of to give you a very, very brief <laughs> 60,000 foot level summary of, of the situation on the ground. Um, now we can go into more specifics if you'd like, but, but where I think what is important, the latest thing that, that I find one of the most important things to, to, to talk about and to highlight is what you've seen as an increasingly uh, tough tone that the U.S. government is taking with Israel right, to right. avoid civilian casualties, and you've heard in particular, and and everybody has. President Biden had uh, came out. Well, he was at uh, actually he was at a private donor dinner, but that's still public, where he said that Israel had to stop its quote indiscriminate bombing, and that Netanyahu had to change. And for a U.S. president to use the word indiscriminate, indiscriminate is a big deal. You've had Secretary Blinken and Vice President Harris also repeat that too many Palestinians have died, and you've had uh, the one whom I found to be the most poignant actually is really Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, where he said he underscored that. In any war, civilians are the center of gravity and that protecting civilians is critical to winning any war. And he pointed to his experience of fighting ISIS and the coalition that fought ISIS and explained that protecting civilians was critical, was a very big piece of why they won, of why they were able to prevent the, these individuals from running into the arms of the enemy. That's his, those are his words. And that it's critical because it ensures that you don't turn, quote, a tactical victory into a strategic defeat. And this is the key theme that you're seeing here. And what he meant by that is that when Israel defeats Hamas, and by the way, I believe they will, I don't see why they wouldn't, um, that they don't turn that victory into something that ends up, end up undermining their broader goal of a secure Israeli state, because they inevitably right. will by turning all these people into living into poverty and uh, it'll only further grievances, of course, and anger so and hate and will in further incite violence. I just want to dig into the US support because fundamentally Israel, for want of a better term, the runway um, that it has on a political basis to uh, conduct its uh, war uh, against Hamas um, is really predicated on the US support. And so clearly tolerance for that is breaking down with these comments um, from Biden and others. Uh, we've also seen uh, reports that the CIA chief has gone over to uh, meet with the security services of, uh, of Israel. Do you get a sense that there's perhaps a push on behind the scenes? You know, Jake Sullivan was in Israel. There's a, is there a push on behind the scenes to say, okay, Israel, you need to stop, to use Joe Biden's terms, indiscriminate bombing of civilians. There's no longer political support for this and you need to move to a more uh, surgical approach to this using your special operation services, et cetera, to take out the remainder of the uh, uh, you know, of the Hamas leadership, et cetera. Is, do you think that's what's happening here? Just sort of trying to read between the lines? Yeah, so there, I think it's two things. On one hand, yes, they are 100% telling them you need to be more targeted, you need to be more surgical and... And not only that this is, this is why, because you don't want to lose the bigger war. You don't want to lose the bigger picture here. Um, they've told them that it's also because they're going to lose international support. But to be honest with you, I don't think that's a very compelling argument to the Israelis because they have survived and been quite successful for a very long time with not a lot of international support. Um, the U.S. relationship, of course, is very important to them, but I don't see that going anywhere. And, and they know that. I, they know, you know, that I, I don't think they think that that'll change either, but that's just not what motivates them is, is, is global support. They're much more focused on their own security. And, um, but also I think the second part of what they're doing there is trying to explain to them how they can be more precise and targeted and, and, and the things that they should be telling and training their soldiers with, because, to be perfectly honest with you, and I, and I want to I want to caveat that I'm not a military expert, but in the 12 years I worked in national security in the U.S. government, I happened to work on a lot of wars, and there is a different discipline in the U.S. At least for the U.S., but I would imagine for most for most uh, democratic nations, there's a different discipline in pursuing war and urban warfare, and. The things that you saw, these, there were two news developments that, that took, that recently took place that I'm sure you all saw, where three Israeli hostages were killed by the IDF in Gaza. And they were 
without shirts and they were waving a white piece of cloth on a stick and two of them were shot. And then when the commander said to cease fire, the third one had run away and was shouting in Hebrew, you know, you know, stop and, and help us. And when he, he hid and then when he came out again, they shot him. And that happened. And then you saw two women who were shot in a Gazan church. And these, these stories to me, it feels like a sloppiness. It just that, that a lot of when you have other democratic states that pursue war, they take on the risk that they, they take on a certain level of risk in order to protect civilians. And I understand that that's riskier. I understand it could mean more losses for your own troops, but that's kind of the cost that you, you make in order to win the broader war. And that calculation doesn't seem to have hit yet. And so as much as if the Israelis are receptive to any message, it's the U.S. one. But to be honest with you, while they are publicly saying, yes, we are going to be more targeted and surgical and precise, and they're using all those words, in my own opinion, from what I'm seeing, I have not seen that change just yet. Yeah. And that's just me the giving a is- perfectly objective analysis. I, I mean, the thing is, you and I would agree, and I think anyone who's fair-minded would agree on a strategic basis that everything Israel is doing is strategically unhelpful um, in terms of how it's conducting, certainly um, as these numbers, if it's 20,000, it's just an extraordinarily horrific number. It's too high. Um, and so notwithstanding, um, the, I guess, the moral authority given uh, to the state of Israel after the you know, terrorist attacks uh, by Hamas uh, against the civilian population in Israel. The, the thing is, I don't think Netanyahu cares about that broader strategic question and, and, and never has. And that's the, therein lies the problem, right? So you say, look, uh, this brutality mm-hmm. you are undertaking is not serving your strategic interests because fundamentally it's making it next to impossible for there to be a two-state solution, next to impossible for... Gaza to be uh, you know, rehabilitated and governed properly, um, and someone's got to be in charge of it after Hamas is eradicated. And even if you get rid of every last Hamas uh, uh, leader, that someone has to be in charge. Presumably not Israel. And so, uh, but they don't care and have never cared. And, and in many ways, it's that attitude which has led us down this path of where we're at right now. Um, and so, it's sort of an impossible problem until there's a change of leadership in Israel. It's hard to see how there's ever going to be a change in strategy or tactics. I agree. I agree. Uh, I agree 100%. I think that now I do think that Netanyahu is on his last days um, and public polling there shows that there's much greater support for Benny Gantz. But at the same time, when they're in the middle of this, uh, it's hard to see that that there's going to be an effort to, to, to oust Netanyahu. But that said, I don't, I, I mean, I think it's a matter of months, not years <laughs> that, uh, if not weeks that Netanyahu will hang on. Um, but I agree with you completely. He doesn't want a Palestinian state. He's made that very clear on a number of times. And that said, what he defines as his strategic goal is different than what the U.S. is telling him and what many other countries are telling him. Because when we say, and the U.S. really is walking there, the U.S. goals are, if I sum it up, are to defeat Hamas, to get the hostages released, to get humanitarian aid in and protect the civilians and to prevent a broader war and from expanding. And those, but those goals are really defined by a broader initiative to have a secure Israeli state and to have and to restart some kind of peace process that would lead toward two states, a two state solution. And um, that that second piece is not at all part of Netanyahu's calculation whatsoever. And that really does change right. and affect how he's going to approach this war. So I just want to just quickly pivot to the other Arab states um, that are all stakeholders in this conflict. Now, before uh, Hamas's attack, there was discussions of a peace agreement between Israel, Saudi Arabia, underwritten by the United States to some degree in terms of peace um, guarantees and security guarantees. Is that there's been some reporting that that you know, the Saudis remain interested in that proposition? But you know, where where do you think that is likely to go? Because that would be a massive game change, as we know, um, for the Middle East in terms of the politics there. But is that really viable if Netanyahu or whomever's in charge of the Israeli government is not giving a a pathway to a two state solution, whether or not it's a, you know whether you can get there? But at the moment, there's not even a 
as you said, a pathway. Mm. Well, so on one hand, it doesn't surprise me at all, and I've said this since the beginning, that that the Saudis would not put off the talks with Israel for a normalization deal, that this conflict would only delay it. Um, or just, you know, just it, mud- it muddies things up. But the fact is that Saudi Arabia has major interests there with Israel that that to Saudi Arabia, um, and I would agree with them, are are much more important to them, which include things like aligning against Iran, getting security, cooperation, intelligence, cooperation, and most critically is help in diversifying Saudi Arabia's economy, which has been the crown prince's number one goal since, since the beginning, basically. I mean, you see every effort he's put in is, is, is toward that goal. And if, if any state in the region can help him do that, it's Israel, given its tech sector and its trade. I mean, it's it, it and it, it, you see it with the UAE trade between Israel and the UAE increased by $20 billion in one year. I mean, that is huge. And so, and Saudi Arabia wants a piece of that too. So, I do expect those talks to continue. Now, before the, the October 7th terrorist attack, Saudi Arabia had been saying that there was, you know, that how Israel was treating the Palestinians was a major sticking point for them. But a state was not part of that requirement. He, what he, what the crown prince kept saying was that he, uh, he was against the way the Israeli government was pursuing raids in the West Bank, the way they were keeping settlers there, the way they were pursuing violence there, the way they were keeping them down, things of that kind, those, these tough, provocative, um, and, and frankly, some of them quite repressive policies against Palestinians. And that's where, you know, that, that's a bar that I think is movable. I mean, I think that, that, that there is room for progress on that in particular, uh, if, Netanyahu goes, which I think he will. And so I, that's why I think, I think that when things calm down and in the grand scheme of wars, when you think of wars like Ukraine and you th- or, or Syria or Yemen, this war will be relatively short, uh, at least much shorter right. because it's a smaller region. Israel shows no, the Israeli government and military show no interest in, in pursuing this as slow as the coalition did against ISIS, for example. Um, and meaning that they're probably going to be finished at some point in the new year. And, um, and so that said, I expect these talks to kind of pick up again, but I don't think that they'll be on some kind of related to requiring a Palestinian state. But even if they shift the conversation to a process that as uh, some kind of peace process, and I, and I certainly hope that it's a substantive process, but even if it's not, then you could always say that, you know, when enemies are talking, they're not fighting. And, uh, and that alone might, might help buttress those kind of Saudi-Israel normalization talks. But I I absolutely expect Mm. them to move forward. Now, staying with the US, but switching uh, theatres, as it were. Um, So Vladimir Zelensky, president of Ukraine, has been in Washington, uh, essentially, for want of a better term, begging uh, the US Congress and congressional leadership to not block funding uh, to Ukraine. Now, there's been various assessments of this, but this, the White House has said that um, if Ukraine is not given additional aid, that essentially things are going to start running out by Christmas. And uh, we are heading very closely into Christmas, wintertime in Ukraine. Fighting is ongoing, but it's not because you know, it's wintertime. You can't move around as, as easily, but the Russian bombardments of Ukrainian electricity and distribution is continuing and Ukraine is running out of surface-to-air defence, so essentially the ability to shoot down drones and missiles. And so where is, I guess, US politics sitting on this? Because fundamentally, whilst the fighting is absolutely critical um, for the Ukrainians, notwithstanding how brave they want to be, um, this war in some ways in the near term will be settled in the capitals of democracies, the United States and and European capitals. So where is it at in the US right now, to your mind? Well, so you're right. You summed it up because he came and he gave, in my opinion, you know, very compelling arguments. But unfortunately, it didn't really move the needle much here in the United States in convincing Senate Republicans specifically to support additional aid for Ukraine. And so at the crux of this seems to be well, it seems to be one thing, but maybe two things. So let me break it down a little bit for you. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, 
the Senate was voting on a $50 billion aid package for Ukraine and Israel, and it failed by one vote. And the argument that the Senate Republicans gave was that because the aid package didn't include any money for the southern border and related to immigration reform, that they felt it was silly to send money abroad to address national security threats there when we weren't dealing with our own national security or homeland security threats. And so then, then President Zelensky came, he made his arguments. And since then, you've just seen Senate Republicans speak publicly about how, again, without immigration reform and money for the southern border, that they don't, they're not interested in additional aid to Ukraine. And then in addition to that, the, um, the, the, a few Senate leaders have, have made allusions to the fact that they, they are not aware of Ukraine's specific military strategies and that they want more briefings on military strategies and so on, which to be honest with you, I don't buy. Um, I mean, sure, they can be briefed all they want, but, uh, but I don't, I don't believe that that's at the, at, at the heart of this. I think it's that they, they do want money for the southern border. And listen, I'm going to be very objective on this. I wouldn't mind seeing more money toward the southern border wow. as well. The FBI director came out a couple of weeks ago saying that he has never seen the terrorist threat in the United States so high, including threats at our southern border. And we have mm. a number over this past year, it's something around 130 or 134 uh, individuals who are, were on the terrorist wanted list who tried to come in across the border and were apprehended. Yeah. So this is a real threat. I mean, this is not something the Senate Republicans are making up and I don't mind them lumping it in. Um, you know, they have to compromise. I just, I just, I need them to understand. And I don't know that they do understand that what you have, what you're talking about, what's at stake here is so big because it's not just that it will, without this aid, it really will make it impossible for Ukraine to beat Russia. And by the way, that already you see the sentiment spreading to the EU. I kind of feel that that's what emboldened Viktor Orban of Hungary to prevent the EU from giving its aid package to Ukraine because he was the only outlier. And until now, he hadn't been. Uh, I mean, we all know that he's friends with Putin, but until now, he hadn't been getting in the way. And suddenly he seemed emboldened to just a week after this happened. And so you, you're talking about a potential cascading uh, effect here of of countries supporting supporting Ukraine, but again, it's not just that Ukraine will lose the the war on the ground. It's what this means for the international world order, and what it means for dictators all over the world right. who want to make land grabs and 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 make wars that are you know pull fabricate wars out of nowhere. But I believe I believe they'll no. compromise. By the way, I do think they're going to get to an aid package. If not by the end of the year, then in the new year. Well, it's interesting, but even. So you've sort of made the point there on a, I guess, practical security basis uh, on the border deal. Politically, so with my political hat on and, uh, you know, I'm a fan of Joe Biden and my politics is anchored in the Labor Party, but it is toxic politically to have um, disorderly migration. Like, And so to, to the extent that um, – so you basically can't have – uh, people support migration, but it can't be disorderly. And what's happening at the southern border on a political basis appears to be disorderly, right? And so I think actually, ironically, the Republicans, though this is not their intention, are, are doing Joe Biden a favour um, if he were to strike a deal. Now, I don't like the ideal idea, frankly, um, of, uh, I guess, a massive geostrategic question being... Um, um, held hostage by US domestic political considerations, but that is politics and that's how politics is. And so we can bemoan it, um, but there is a deal to be struck there. And I think it's actually in Joe Biden's political interests, notwithstanding um, it's also in the US security interests, the point you made. So just switching to European politics just very quickly, I mean, how big a deal do you think this EU ascension um, protocol package for Ukraine is, is it really a, I mean, it's not a near term thing. Ascending to the EU takes a very, very long time. The Ukrainians are very excited about it. The big things that they want are to become part of Europe, to, to become part of NATO. Now, NATO is a much harder thing to do um, on a practical basis just because you uh, can't be at war before you join NATO. But EU ascension, is it possible? What do you think? 
So I believe, I, I mean, I think this was great news that, that that they received. And while you do have a lot of skeptics out there who are saying, you know, I'll believe it when I see it, the fact is that it's not easy to get to where they got. And the fact that the EU uh, commission lead is saying, um, you know, Ukraine has made remarkable progress on top of it during wartime. And that is something that they want to reward. I mean, Ukraine, in my opinion, Ukraine is a, is exactly the type of country the EU should want to have in its orbit. And for the, for Ukraine, it means a lot because it's not just, for them, it means so much more than, than just being part of the, of this body. It's about sending this message to Putin. Um, you know, we are not with you. We don't side with you. We don't want your way of governing. We don't want your system. We've made it very clear. This, this solidifies that. And while it will take time and I expect it will. And, and, and it's one of those things where it is a very big deal. But will it do something to affect where things are in the war, which is kind of at a stalemate at the po- at the moment? I'm not so sure. Um, I wonder sometimes if in, on the EU end, if they're going to kick the can down the road a little bit until things calm down a little bit, because I don't know that they're going to want an EU member that's actively at war, just as, right? It wouldn't, for example, they're not going to be able to ever become a member, a member of NATO while they're in war. It would have to, it would, it would be after. And, um, and so that's, that's, that's the only thing. And I, and I expect this war to take a while is the only thing, but, but in general, I think it's big news. I would say, you know what? I'm curious to your thought about this. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, no, no. I mean, you got, if you were going to ask me a question, please do it. You know, I, this, this is in the, in the, you know, to just take a bigger picture, look for a second. A lot of the media here keeps saying how Ukraine is losing the counteroffensive. And I take a lot of issue with that. And I think it's unfair because as of July, Ukraine had regained 50% of the land Russia had seized as of July. That's significant. That is huge. And to do that without any air power whatsoever on top of it. And so- it's at a stalemate right now, sure. And that's how things go. I mean, they're so the, and, but that doesn't mean they're losing either. It just means they're not moving forward or backwards at the moment. Um, and you made a talking point that I really want to know. I want your listeners to know this because I have found it's a talking point that I hope to repeat to people. I found it to be so compelling where you said that investing in Ukraine, fighting this war is one of the best bargains out there because it is it is a war that matters where we ourselves are not sending troops to the ground but they are fighting a war for democracy and freedom for all of us and so why wouldn't we support why wouldn't the US and the EU support even further and that is a that is a it is one of the most compelling arguments Misha I think you should come to congress and make that argument yourself because it's well uh, you know oh, well, listen. I don't know I'm anyway I had to make that point and I want I'm very curious to review as well on the media saying that that this counteroffensive isn't working um and what you have to say about that and so I know that distracts a little bit from the question of the EU but you know, just to take it to no, 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 the level I mean, and get listen, your views I mean, in here. I'm, uh, I'm not going to stop someone repeating my own talking points back to me. It's a very beautiful thing. So thank you very much for that. But um, no, look, I mean, I You're describe welcome. it as the deal of the century. <laughs> <laughs> I describe yes, it as the deal of the century. That was what you said. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. And so I think, um, and it is, it is, it is. And it's a deal that we're going to perhaps wish we had taken. Um, you know, I always say that, we're two years into something. We, we won't know whether or not it's two years into something much bigger, darker and worse, or are we two years into the moment where we look back and say this is where the dictators were put back in their box, the bad guys were put back in the box. But um, in terms of, I think, look, there is a, there's, a, there's a feedback loop that has worked positively for the Ukrainians, um, which is that uh, their battlefield success is predicated on getting more weapons and the more success they have, the more weapons they get. And early on, they survive quite heroically and perhaps surprisingly, given everyone thought that they survived 24 hours. And so gradually more weapons came as, as, as confidence grew that Ukraine could fight and fight well. Um, then this is that, that positive feedback loop has perhaps got into a, a negative spot, which is that um, the expectations had been set so high that uh, you know that Ukraine was going to have this stunning counteroffensive to the extent that it had, uh, where it routed, really quite frankly, routed the Russians um, in the northeast of the country last year, this time last year, and then recaptured Kherson 
uh, in the south. And so everyone's like, well, that's going to happen again. Now, of course, wars are much more grinding than that typically. And it, and you're right, they're doing it without air power. And so the NATO doctrine, everyone's like, well, what's happening? Why are they doing this following NATO doctrine? Well, NATO doctrine assumes assumes that you'll have air superiority, which Ukraine does not have, does not have close to that. They, you know, they still don't have F-16s, which will hopefully come in the summer. And they may be some level of game change. Um, uh, so, so it's an expectations management thing because throughout the summer, Ukraine has gone forward. They have gone forward, just perhaps not as quickly as the world would like. And Zelensky has said, "Look, the world's not, you know, war's not a movie. This is not going to have some big Hollywood ending that on, on you know, we'd like to end this now. So, can you give us the big finale? It's just not how it works." Um, Zeluzhny, who's the uh, head of the, the commander chief of the uh, of the military, wrote an essay for the Economist, which was a little bit controversial domestically in Ukraine, he sort of used the word stalemate. And then Zelensky came out and said it's not a stalemate. So Zeluzhny's point, I think, was basically unless we get some level of game-changing military power, it's very difficult for us to expel the Russians from our land at the rate at which the world wants us to do it. And I think there's some truth to that. Um, So coming back to your point around the deal of the century, giving weapons and not having to spend... You know, drop of our blood, and it's tragic for the Ukrainians to have to expend their lives. Um, but to the extent that they want to fight for their freedom, um, and and if we define the stakes as them fighting for all of our freedom, then I think, as I said, it's the deal of the century. But the thing I worry about, and I want your opinion on this, because we've talked about the EU, but talked about Orban and this sort of illiberal democracy that is rising around the world, but in, in Europe in particular as well, uh, now, there was a victory against that type of politics with the Polish government um, being chucked out and the Law and Justice Party, which is a very right-wing party, got turfed by a big grand coalition of far-left and moderate progressive parties. Um, but we've seen a – well, whether or not they form a government, the first largest party in Dutch politics is a far-right anti-immigration party and there's a rising tide of this style of politics throughout Europe. And what that means for the European project is a an interesting question. So what's your take on that? I mean, it has relevance to Ukraine, but it has relevance, I think, to the broader democracy question as well. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. It's like for every step forward, there's there are two steps back. So you've seen, like you said, in Poland, um, a real win for democracy there in their election. And, uh, and at the same time, you've seen, you mentioned the Netherlands, of course, a very, a quite far right leader, um, who, who will become prime minister and then, uh, and a, a pro, someone pro Putin in Slovakia. And then, by the way, you had at the same time as the elections in the Netherlands, you had riots in Ireland that were ultimately anti immigration, far right anti immigration riots that were started because of a rumor that an immigrant had stabbed some children. And, um, and that was a rumor. And I still, by the way, I, I, I don't know if they've even released yet who it was that, that, that stabbed those children, but the rumor was that it was an immigrant and that it, it, um, it spiraled into these, uh, into these riots that became quite violent and there was a lot of looting and, and arson and so on. And that, you know, it is concerning because all of it is tied to, you know, it's all connected. And I don't think it's only related to Ukraine. I do think that, that, that a lot of it is related as well to migrants uh, coming from, you know, from Syria and Afghanistan and Northern Africa and so on. And, uh, and it's related to that too. And, and, you know, you've been, you see this, that it's been growing for a while, but there's no, there's no way it's not going to play out in Ukraine as well, because with that kind of, that those kind of policies are usually led by people who are very populist and very, hyper nationalistic and as a result of that are very in in inner looking right they they want to invest only in their countries they think that the best way forward is not to give aid outside not to help lend a helping hand outside it's they have a harder time seeing that why you would and why that would benefit your security in the future because again they're very they're very hyper-nationalist and, and, uh, you know, very like, like for Trump, it would be America first, right? That, that, that same, the Netherlands first and Ireland first and all of that. Um, so I do think it's a very worrisome trend, but you know, because I like to look at things, the gla- glass half full, <laughs> you still do have governments 
other governments around the world where for every one that you see moving to the right, you have another one that has beat the right and moved to the left. And so it's, I feel like it's always going to kind of be that, that pendulum. Just, I hope that it just doesn't take over, that that sentiment takes us into the wrong direction altogether. Yeah, I, I think the, the real big challenge for democratic governments um, that are smaller, liberal or more progressive leaning is this question of migration and managed migration. That I think what is causing the sentiment of hostility to the question of the broader question of migration, I think people can hold two things to be true at the same time, which is the peculiar thing about politics. The maddening thing is if you've ever been in a focus group and watched focus groups, and I've done it, looked at polling and go, how can these people hold these completely you know, cognitively dissonant, if you want to use the technical term, but essentially things that are polar opposites and hold them true at the same time. But um, you'll see if you say uh, when you test migration, people generally have a favourable view of it. If, if it's uh, uh, say, so, yeah, I think migrants are good for the economy, good for our country, et cetera, et cetera. But if you say, how do you feel about people entering the country illegally or how do you feel about people coming here without the appropriate, um, uh, you know, the appropriate queue system or whatever, however you want to phrase it? Very hostile to that. Same mm-hmm. people, and so that's how people feel. And we are democracies, and you need to be cognizant of that. And so the sense that you can just have unrestricted, uncontrolled migration, this sort of global view, borderless world that a lot of the, ironically, far left tend to not believe in citizenship, and the far right or the, the mercantile, right, not far right, but the kind of more capitalist, right, don't like to have borders either because it's good for, you know, the free flow of goods and labour and capital is good for them. But it doesn't survive democratic discourse. Um, and, and so if you don't have an answer for it, the to your point, the nationalists will have a very compelling answer for it, i.e. insert country first. Why are we not prioritizing the people that are already here? And, and, and there are messages that people go, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. I'm struggling. And so um, ignore it at your peril um, is my mm-hmm. uh, advice to anybody. And I worry about it a lot because I think it is a very incendiary form of politics that can metastasize when done in an ugly way with the kind of Donald Trump style messaging. When you saw him the other day say that, Illegal migration was poisoning the blood of the United States, which is just a terrifying kind of, you know, you've got to be careful with these comparisons, but a Nazi-style um, sentiment. So uh, it's all very dark. Now, switching <laughs> to something that actually – Always I, good news. Yeah, Always good news well, on this indeed, podcast. Right? They are, yeah, it's a good news channel. Tune in. Um, <laughs> what you want to talk about, we're talking about illiberal democracy, right? And so we're talking about democracies that we understand to have been, you know, liberal or social democratic, or the European style democracies or a, a more Western style democracies. But pretend democracies are also democracies in some ways. And so you know, there are countries that still have elections that we would not recognize as democracies. We'll talk about two of them. Uh, Russia and Hong Kong. But firstly, Hong Kong, tell us what's going on there because obviously we had the two countries, sorry, one country, two systems, uh, which has become one country, one system uh, as Hong Kong's democracy got crushed by Xi Jinping and the national security laws. But what tell us about the recent elections because it was quite surprising and interesting what happened there. I totally agree with you. Um, so they had elections for their district council, which are seats that are directly elected by their people. And, um, and their turnout was 27.5%, which would be extremely low for anybody. But if you, com- but if you compare it to Hong Kong's past, it is shockingly low. In fact, in their elections in 2019, so just a few years ago, their turnout was 71%. And all of this is a sign. So there's some bad news and good news to this. Mostly bad, but, but, but I want to let, wait till the end for me to give you the silver lining. So all of this is due to Beijing's effort to crack down on Hong Kong's democracy. Uh, 
they, the, in 2019, the majority of those people who came out to vote, it was because they were voting for pro-democracy candidates who really wiped out the pro-Beijing ones. And that's when Beijing changed course. And again, I mean, that's when you have the protests and so on, right? So just to give you a little bit of, a little bit of historical context here. Since then, for the one of the first things they did, uh, Beijing, well, the Hong Kong authorities under the thumb of China, uh, the first, one of the first things they did is limit the number of district council seats that could be directly elected by the people. There were 400 some odd seats and they took it down to 88. Eight out of 400 some odd seats, only 88 now can be elected by the people. Of those 88, in order to become a candidate, to even run for one of those few seats, you have to go through a quote, national security screening, which we all know what that means. Uh, and you have to pass the approval of about eight or nine Beijing committees. So you basically, the bottom line is you must be very pro-Beijing in order to even run in these elections. And uh, not to mention that they took any effort that they could to quash any kind of pro-democracy. We know that the efforts they've taken to quash pro-democracy movements and activists and so on. But even for these elections, when they learned that a, pro, a very small pro-democracy group had planned a protest, they showed up at their at their offices and arrested the individuals before they even carried the protest out. So the the bad news here is that all of this is a sign of Beijing's enduring crackdown on the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong and that they will continue doing it. But the thing that I find so poignant here, and the, if you will, the good news is that Hong Kongers are saying, well, then we're, it's like they're going on strike. You know, they're saying, well, we're not going to participate in this. We're going to show that, in fact, it is the majority of Hong Kongers who want democracy. And if there are no pro-democracy candidates, then we're not coming out to vote. And the part, the reason that message is loud and clear, not just to Beijing, but to the world, is that there was clearly some embarrassment on the part of the, of the Hong Kong authorities because they went out on social media begging people to get out and vote, and then they extended the voting time. Now, they said that it was because of some technical difficulties with the voting machines, but nobody believes that. To do that kind of, nobody does that. I've never seen that. Like, there, Very rarely do you see that in elections where, especially in dictatorships, where they're extending the voting time. Usually it's the opposite. And so... All of that to be said, I mean, at the end of the day, even though they're, the Chinese are kind of succeeding, that message is still very loud and clear. And they, they are still, you know, they're never going to be able to say, oh, but this is what the majority of, of the people want. Um, so that's to sum up. It, it's that's a fascinating, sum up the situation there. One of, one of the fascinating things that when you observe, there's no question that everyone knew the outcome of these elections, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's not like that there was any danger that pro-democracy candidates would win government in Hong Kong. And yet the brittle sort of glass jaw of these regimes is that they still kind of are terrified by the prospect of anything that would make them appear illegitimate. So the idea that not enough people turned out to vote in an election that was already rigged, we're very fearful of that because it, it, what it fundamentally comes down to, and this is the truth, and it, and it manifests itself in all these different ways, is that these regimes know they're illegitimate and they fear their own mm-hmm. people, right? And so it's constantly trying to construct legitimacy, right? We want to be in charge, but we want to yes. appear to also be legitimately in charge. And what the people of Hong Kong are doing in their own way now, because it's very difficult to do it, publicly because of the national security laws and, and really the, the umbrella movement has been crushed and all the, a lot of democracy people have fled. But they're doing it just by refusing to participate. It, it's a kind of a beautiful mm-hmm. denial of that legitimacy. Say, so, okay, well, we're just not going to turn out and that's a message in of itself. So as you say, it's um, yeah, over 70% of people just stayed home, nearly three and four Hong Kongers just chose not to vote, which is a fascinating thing because just to switch to – my other favourite place, Russia. Um, this is an ongoing debate amongst liberals or people that are opposed to Putin inside of Russia, which is do you participate in the bullshit system um, or and or do you try to uh, just deny, you know, don't, don't give it that legitimacy by participating? And, and, the, and the, a lot of people will debate back and forth whether or not this is a... a, a um, a worthwhile thing because again, that managed completely rigged democracy. Putin is still very obsessed with the legitimacy of it, and he's very fearful, particularly at local government level, of candidates that have slipped through the net that 
because they, yeah, he <laughs> he has people run against him in kind of tactical and strategic ways that he wants certain messages to be out there and he kind of can appear to be the sensible figure in the middle of it all sometimes. But uh, but they still are terrified of the outcome, still terrified of the outcome because even though that they can stuff the ballot box and what have you, that um, if not enough people turned out or if a certain candidate was surprisingly well-supported, et cetera, it, it is a um, – it, it's amazingly – yeah, Putin's been in charge of Russia since 2000 and still terrified um, of the outcome of rigged elections, which brings me very long way to say that um, Vladimir Putin, uh, through his good graces, has decided to pursue another six-year term as Russia's president. Thank God. I was very worried for a second there about whether or not he was going to contest. But what was interesting about it, and I don't know if you have a take, but what was interesting was the way that he announced uh, his candidacy was very low key. It was at like a community event. There was no big rally. And I think, um, yeah, look, uh, one of my favorite sayings, uh, and feel free to quote this one back to me too, Hugo, but one of my favorite sayings is just because uh, <laughs> there's no democracy doesn't mean there's no politics. And so they, you know, as we know, these regimes are constantly surveying and surveilling, but they, they, they keep a very close eye on public mood. You know, they, they poll and they group and they're always interested in what people are thinking. And clearly, I think there's a mood in Russia at the moment that uh, a lot of these old timers have been here a long time, even people that are favourable to Putin are kind of like, look, man, you've been around a long time, you're pretty old. Right? And everyone in Russia who's a leader is old. We'd be like the United States, but parking that. Um, so uh, <laughs> I think Putin, I know we're no one Putin, to point fingers here anymore. <laughs> right, 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 right. But Putin is basically... I think detected that. And so his way, he was like, oh, he got asked a question by some, yeah, inverted commas, got asked a question impromptu by some punter who said, uh, oh, yeah, Mr. President, you're going to run against, oh, well, look, you know, the people need me and I just think, you know, it's, it's a hard job, but I'm prepared to do it. But, which, you know, nonsense, but it's just instructive that he had to do it that way. And, and that sort of is telling. So I don't know what, what you made of that, but that was my assessment. You know what's I the thing that struck me about this also was more that it was news that went under the radar just as you highlighted. Um it it barely made major headlines here and maybe it's in part because we've come to expect it but I think you're right it's that it was a deliberate effort um to keep it to keep it under the radar. It's kind of one of those things that when um when I was spokesperson in the US government it's like when we used to put press releases out on a Friday afternoon it was because it was a deliberate effort to not attract <laughs> no one news ever do that. and no one would yeah. ever do that. That's outrageous. <laughs> you know, like, or, or like the day before Thanksgiving, right, is when you would roll out some right, sanction right. that you didn't want anybody paying attention to. And that's right. what this reeked of to me. And to me, again, I agree with you. It, it, I had a feeling, and I know this is a little bit psychoanalytical, but I agree. I mean, there is, um, there are facts there about, about his own, um, you know, we don't have perfect public polling, but but it's very clear that he's facing a lot of dissent and he can't be completely oblivious to that. And right. uh, and as you said, like it does these these dictators do care. Um, you know, you, you put it so well when it came to Hong Kong, it's that they really do care for some sense of legitimacy. And and right. even if they feel they have to force it out of you in a way. And and I and I wonder I do wonder how it'll play out. In general, I mean, he, listen, he's doubling down. He continues to double down on Ukraine. He continues to fill his, his as many troops as he's lost. And the U.S. intelligence came out to say that he's lost 315,000 troops. That right. is an insane number. Wow. Um, yeah, he wow. continues to populate them with convicts and he continues to find ways to get ammunition and drones and, and parts from Turkey and North Korea and Iran and then companies in China, the UAE and so on. And, um, you know, he's meaning he's doubling down on this because he feels like it's going to, to help him. Clearly he thinks on one hand, it feels he's going to help him. And on the other hand, he doesn't care as much. He, he, you know, he's a dictator and politics only go so far in, in I mean, public, pu public opinion. I assume, I mean, that's my view. Usually, you know what I mean? Like you usually see leaders make decisions based on, public opinion because it matters. And for him, when it comes to doubling down in Ukraine, I look at that and I'm like, you really don't care how many people you lose because it's not going to affect your, your longevity in the, in the grand scheme of things. Um, but, uh, but, but he did, there are signs he's, he's scared. Did you see him with the, 
uh, being interviewed on, on TV about his AI double? No. It was fast. It was fascinating. So I highly, I highly encourage watching this video. Just Google, you know, uh, Putin, Russian AI, something double of this kind. But basically he was on a TV show and a student at some university created a Putin AI generated double and a computer generated thing, obviously. And so the host, the anchor says, you know, you, you got to see this and I want your res- response to this, Putin, because it's, it's quite, it's quite shocking how real it is. And so then they turn to the AI double and the AI double is talking in Putin's voice, in Putin's mannerisms, moving like Putin. I mean, it's shocking. Aside from the fact that the AI double looked a little thinner than him and a little younger, it really is shocking how similar. And we all know that from generative AI, right? And Putin could not muster a response. He started stuttering. And then after, after stuttering for a little bit, he just said some nonsensical thing like, well, only I can be me and only I can speak for me. And I've decided that that's me, you know, something completely idiotic like that. And I think it's because it shook him. And, you know, I mean, it really, yeah. so meaning I think he hasn't, he has insecurities, right? He has insecurities. They are appearing in all these different ways. It's fascinating. Go check out that video because it really is fascinating. Well, I was wondering, I was like, what I if the AI that. double? Yeah. What we what we know about Putin though is that he wouldn't have been too upset that it was thinner and younger. Um, he's a vain, yeah, I guess. vain man as we know. But uh, it's interesting actually because Putin, a lot of people don't know this about him is that he basically doesn't use the internet. So he's such a nineteen eighties guy in everything, like in terms of his geopolitics, in terms <laughs> of his military strategy, prioritization of kinetic power. So like all the. Uh, all the sort of Russian misinformation campaigns, et cetera, are conducted by people other than him. He's like, yeah, you guys should do that. But he doesn't really pay close attention to it. And so I'm not shocked um, that he's perhaps a bit rattled by what deep face can do. Having said that, um, I worry very much, and you know, anyone, you've heard my hand ringing about this before, but I worry about those videos finding their way into democratic discourse. Um, not so much fake Putin, but fake everybody else. I think is going to be a far bigger challenge because um, information in the you know, in these authoritarian regimes is much more controlled, as we know. Now, I want to switch. Actually, one last thing on Russia before I go to this. Also, she mentioned that Navalny's gone missing. Um, who's the yes. uh, the Russian opposition leader? He's in prison, being held you know, on trumped up charges. Uh, his lawyer went to see him. He has disappeared somewhere in the prison system and then the Russian prison system as I understand is quite peculiar in that they don't have to tell you what your lawyer if you're in transit where you are so it's all very peculiar but given that it's on the eve of elections you know they they again this guy's in jail completely locked up and they're still terrified of him which is goes to that um, mm-hmm. that legitimacy question now uh, I won't ask you to comment on that because we are running out of time but there are two big things I want to talk about so we are going to do a new tradition at the end of the year. I think we kind of did something like this, but I want to talk about your big shock for the year of 2023 and your big prediction for 2024. So what is your, I guess, most shocking thing of a very, very shocking year? What's the thing that you like, man, I just did not see that coming. I mean, there's certain things that perhaps are shocking, <laughs> but perhaps we could have seen coming. Um, what what, what would yours be? <laughs> All right. I have a few, but I will pick one and hopefully I'm not taking yours, but I, well, I would say the one that the one, yeah, the, the one that was most shock. Oh God, there are so many. Like I said, you can't make world news up, but the one that I thought was the most shocking was I really did not see Progosian leading a mutiny to try and take over the Russian military. Um, now once he did it, I, absolutely saw him being killed in some dramatic way and and he was indeed yeah. but no but i did i did not There's see no that happening yet no and it was just the way the whole thing happened i mean you expect sometimes uh folks in the in in the rank and file to defect or or so on but uh but to lead a mutiny the way he did to storm in and then march to moscow in this very dramatic fashion and take selfies with people as though he had already won i mean this is not this is i did not expect that to happen that is the most shocking thing. And then for predictions, um, I really feel, and now listen, this sounds very dark, but it is what it is. Uh, we live in this world of world news and it tends to be darker than it is brighter. Um, 
we we're we're in a little bit of a weird phase with conflicts around the world and i just if i were china if i were president xi right now i would kind of think that it's it would be a good time to do some kind of aggressive move um whether it's a bigger land grab or whether it's against taiwan or you know i, I and i'm not trying to i i don't want this to happen i want to be very clear about that i just feel like when the world is distracted by ukraine and now israel on top of it that um you want us resources to be strapped and already yeah. that's playing out in our public politics very clearly and so you know check on that and uh and you want you know you've got a big election coming up here in the united states and you've got a, a lot of elections by the way coming up next year um around the world i just unfortunately think like it would be a good time for china to do something except for the fact that its economy is not um doing as great as it expected and then for my prediction and now listen it's going to sound dark but uh, you and i live in the world of world news which tends to be on the darker side i just i believe that china next year will try and do something aggressive or provocative more aggressive and more provocative uh than it has in the past couple of years and already they've they've done a lot um uh they've done a lot but i just feel that with the world distracted with ukraine and now israel and it's not even just a distraction it's about a strap of resources and it's playing out in us politics very publicly and not just in us politics in european politics too where when you've got that happening, if I were President Xi, I would kind of think that, hey, maybe it's a good time to pursue something because these two massive powers are strapped. They're busy with something else. Their money's going to, to other conflicts and their, and their public isn't happy about it. Um, and, uh, and so I would, I, you know, I don't want to say where exactly. I just think if I were President Xi, that it might not be. I hate even advising that. I don't want to look at, make this seem like advice that I'm giving, but I just predict that. He's probably going to try something aggressive or provocative, whether it's related to the South China Sea, Taiwan, the Himalayas, you know, wherever there's territory that he wants that he's let, you know, has his hand, his eyes on. Yeah, look, I think you're right. I, I, I would hesitate to imagine that it would be a, um, you know, a full on invasion of Taiwan, though that's possible. Um, but you're yeah, right, like some something. kind of everything short of that. You know, it's like it, could they could they do an annexation of um, one of Hong Kong? Sorry, not Hong Kong, Taiwan, smaller islands. Um, there are questions around that. Yeah, you're right. Um, and also the time to perhaps do it if the US is in a very tight election in October or November next year, rather. Uh, that would also be an interesting moment um, where you know, the US be very stretched. Now, dark prediction, but sorry, not a bad one. Um, <laughs> No, no, you're right. No, 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 no. We're here to bring the happy news. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Um, so my, 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 my big shock, uh, the Progression one was on my list, but it wasn't my one that I was going to go with. Actually, the one that I still just can't believe is the Indian government getting caught assassinating political opponents in Canada is wild. And a lot of people were skeptical that it had happened, but it would appear now that there's been charges laid um, and strong evidence. And look, from the outset, um, I didn't want it to be true, right, because it's deeply inconvenient um, <laughs> for the Modi regime to be doing this, to say the least, um, given the importance of India to the Quad and as a counterbalance to the Chinese Communist Party and everything else. Having said that, you can't ignore these things. And it is the reddest of red, 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 red lines to inv be involved yourself in extraterritorial murders. And what I fear is a lot of us have been watching this sort of illiberal slide, if you want to call it that, of the Modi regime and saying, oh, it's not happening, it's not happening. And I didn't know what it would be. I didn't, certainly didn't predict this. And, you know, it's egregiously bad and horrendously sloppy. Um, and so to have done both those things is just extraordinary to me in terms of the stupidity of it. But uh, it felt like, something might happen um, with the Modi regime as it's become more nationalist, um, become more fearful of so-called terrorists, political opponents um, living in other countries, right? So, look, yeah, we would argue, you know, we would argue quite forcefully that they shouldn't be oppressing their political opponents domestically. But, it's just, you know, there's just no excuse for murdering your political opponents who are living 
in other countries, and in this instance, Canada. And so the Canadians, people were skeptical. I was like, look, man, I'm going to go with a Five Eyes partner on this um, who would not, in my opinion, make a uh, an accusation of that magnitude without evidence. And we know that um, Trudeau tried to raise it with Modi bilaterally at the G20, got fobbed off and sort of was sort of left with no alternative other than do what he did um, in the Canadian Parliament. So that, to me, was the biggest shock with perhaps the biggest potential consequences. And, you know, I worry about where that's all heading and will we are we in denial of a broader trend here um, in India because it's not convenient to really kind of engage with what's happening there. So there's that. Um, and my big prediction um, now, this may be me wish casting, right? Because I always like to sort of believe that there's some way through. But as we head into 2024, a lot of elections, 2 billion people going to the polls, the biggest, whilst not the biggest uh, on a numerical basis, biggest, most important election would be the United States elections. Uh, or, you know, we expect that it'll be based on polling, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, um, you know, matchup or rematch of the 2020 election. Here is my prediction. Something tells me, now I don't know whether or not this will come to pass, but something tells me that neither Joe Biden or Donald Trump will be the contenders at that election. I just got, I can somehow see a world where Trump, I think, is carrying too much weight. I think there is a pathway for Nikki Haley to beat Trump in the in the primary. If she finishes second in Iowa, stay with me, everyone, this is technical. Uh, she finishes second in Iowa, manages to um, parlay that into a victory in New Hampshire. I think Trump, then his court cases start to begin. And then the next relevant uh, battleground state after that is drumroll South Carolina, where drumroll uh, Nikki Haley was governor. So Trump's biggest hold on the party is that he's got a hold on the party. It's sort of a re- reinforcing truth. If suddenly it becomes clear that he's not unbeatable, I think that that could very quickly see support for him evaporate alongside uh, all the other uh, troubles he has uh, legally. So there's that. In which case, and he's already said this, but actually based on my conversations with people in the White House and also just my assessment, Biden doesn't want to run. But he's running because he believes that Donald Trump is a clear and present danger to everything, which I share President Biden's view. Um, and so I think that would be a graceful exit for him as well if if Trump's no longer the Republican candidate. So there is my rosy, perhaps rosy prediction. Uh, but all evidence would point to the contrary. So anyone who wants to say, that's never going to happen, yep, and feel free to throw this back to me. But I just that I think that that... Could, that is that is not an outrageous proposition and it would be a good one um, for the world if, if, if that were to happen. And the thing I worry about for US politics, and this happened in 2016 as well where we got Trump in the first place, is that public polling, even people that like um, uh, Joe Biden particularly, but also people that were perhaps favourable to Trump's presidency but you know want to move on is that the public in the United States is saying, we don't want this contest. Quite apart from who would you vote for, would you vote for Biden, would you vote for Trump? We don't want this contest whatsoever. Yet the political class, for peculiar reasons, is about to serve up this contest. They tried to do that with Bush Clinton in 2016. Sanders nearly came through and obviously Trump did. And then because it was an out anti-establishment candidate versus an establishment candidate, the anti-establishment candidate won in Trump. And the rest is history. But so anyway, so I just I just think that I don't know something just tells me it, with that dynamic at play, with all Trump's troubles, this may not break the way that the as they say CW or conventional wisdom um, may you know holds at this point. So anyway, so that's my you know hope for a better future. Um, and on that cheery note, Hagar, now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to say thank you so much for coming on the show throughout the year. Now, I know you've done your homework and you've read my book and have bought it and have bought 50 copies and are just busily handling it, handing it out to everybody for Christmas. But uh, obviously, if you haven't, make sure you get it. 
<laughs> it's do get it thanks so but much do mate. get it yes and, uh, do get the book it's so yes no do get the book it i mean i did not finish it yet i did start it though and i can't wait to finish it because it really is um it captures you it's just you it was a very creative way of sharing this you know what's happening in ukraine through a fictional story it's just very it's really brilliant so Bravo to you on that. And thank you for ending this on well, a happy note, you. since that's so thank rare. You. And listen, everybody, that it, yeah, you don't have to listen to me, but you should listen to Hagar, everybody. So, uh, look, thanks so much for joining us, everybody. Thank you to Hagar. We'll see you next year. See you next year. Happy New Year. Well, thanks so much to Hagar Shamali for coming on Um a big thank you to everyone for supporting the show. Merry Christmas. That is the end of Diplomates for this year, but we'll be back next year uh, with a always chaotic series of guests, patterns of episodes, but uh, hopefully always insightful and listen- interesting listening. So thank you uh, to everyone who re- has stayed loyal to the program. And I'm always shocked at the number of people that listen. And uh, So thank you so much and uh, have a great break. I'll catch you next year. You were just listening to Diplomates a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels.